Now let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. As we said last week, we're going to return back to our study of Hebrews. And so we are in Hebrews chapter 6, and this morning we're going to cover Hebrews 6 verses 9 to 20. I know that's a large chunk, and we may come back and look at some things more specifically, but uh, at first take, I want to get the, the big picture, as it were, of what these verses are saying. So... Hebrews chapter 6, but I'm going to read all of the chapter just so we get the the full flow. So starting at verse 1 then, Hebrews chapter 6, Therefore let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, those who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often fails on it and produces vegetation useful uh, to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of the things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in a word, the problem that these readers had, which is the occasion why the writer of Hebrews sent this epistle, the problem that these readers had, in a word, was dullness. Spiritually dull. Sluggishness. Lethargy. Or, you go back up to chapter 5, verse 11, there he calls it laziness. That's what their problem was. These people were spiritually lazy. You say, well, what does spiritually lazy mean? What does spiritual laziness? Well, 
Spiritual laziness may be defined simply as a state or of indifference and apathy regarding one's own spiritual growth and vitality. That's what spiritual laziness is. There, there's an indifference to how you are spiritually. There's an indifference or apathy to how you are in the growth of you as a Christian. I mean, I think we all know what it means just to be lazy. Someone who procrastinates, someone who's obsessed with social media and entertainment, someone who's messy, unhealthy, unfocused, unmotivated, unsociable, does the bare minimum, full of excuses. You get the idea. You know anybody that's lazy? <laughs> Don't say your dad, okay? Well, we'll just carry it over spiritually. A.W. Tozer describes this condition well. He says, There is little communion and little joy in the Lord to have a cold heart with little pity, little fire, little love, and little worship is spiritual laziness. End quote. To add to that, if we were going to describe the symptoms of spiritual laziness, it could be a combination of any of these. Uh, a chronic indulgence in sinful thoughts and actions. Little or no desire to pray. Finds joy and love in worldly ent entertainment. Refuses and avoids any personal accountability. Uh, a decreased appetite for Bible reading and Bible study. Materialism. Selfishness. A reluctance in sporadic church attendance. And, and the list could go on. Uh, I think you have the idea. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, wrote this. A lazy Christian will always lack four main things. Comfort, contentment, confidence, and assurance. End quote. Which are really the, the four things that are addressed in this letter. They were spiritually lazy. They lacked all of these things. They, they lacked comfort. They lacked contentment. They lacked confidence. They lacked assurance. And more. Again, in a word, they were spiritually lazy. Now, there could be a number of reasons why they became spiritually lazy. And we can cover that some other time. And in fact, we have covered that in the past. But the question that we really want to discuss this morning is how do we get out of it? That, that's, that's what we want to get to. If we are diagnosing ourselves as spiritually lazy, you just heard a, a few of the symptoms and you say, you know what, I am. That's where I, exactly where I'm at. I, I am spiritually dull at the moment. I am spiritually lazy at the moment. And I'm not happy about that. How do I get out of that? I mean, if you're saying to yourself, I'm not progressing in my faith, I'm not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I'm not constantly, or I am constantly grumbling and complaining, I keep coddling that secret sin, I love to watch TV rather than pray and read my Bible, and I'm hardly at church, and maybe by divine appointment you're here to hear this. How do you snap out of it? Do you want to snap out of it? Why is it important to snap out of it? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says this, Many, instead of working out salvation, sleep away salvation. 
A sluggish soul is prey to Satan. While men are asleep in sloth, the devil enters and devours them. End quote. Spiritual laziness is a very serious issue. So much so that the writer of Hebrews picks up his pens and writes for 13 chapters discussing why they need to snap out of it and return back to some vitality. Why is it a serious issue? Why is it a dangerous issue? Because it's only one step away from apostasy. Indifference in religion, William Seeker said, is the first step to apostasy from religion. End quote. And as I said, this is basically the gist of the book of Hebrews. I mean, you can discern from everything he says in this letter that he knows that these people are, are spiritually apath- apathetic, they are spiritually lazy, And again, he knows that this is a very dangerous state. That's why he has all these warnings throughout the letter. They were acting just like who? The Hebrews of old. To the Hebrews. Talk about spiritually lazy, spiritually apathetic, spiritually indifferent. That that characterizes the, the, the Hebrews of old. So how do we overcome this? How do we overcome spiritual laziness? Well, as I said, this is what we want to concern ourselves with this morning. And this is what our text here concerns us as well. And so out of this, I see at least four ways that the writer is communicating to us of how to overcome spiritual laziness. In verses 9 to 20, again, a big picture of these verses, he is telling us that there's four things that we need, four things that we need if we are going to snap out of it and move forward and press on. Let me give those four to you up front, and then I'll work our way through those one by one. First of all, we're going to need some encouragement. That's the body of Christ. That's particular people in our lives. No man is an island, especially as a Christian. We're going to need encouragement, and we'll see that. Uh, Alongside the encouragement, we we can say we need, secondly, exhortation. We need some strong exhortations and motivations. Thirdly, we're going to need some examples. I mean, here we are in 2023, and we aren't the first Christians that have arrived on the planet. There's plenty of them, both biblically and throughout church history. And he's going to encourage us to what? Look at them. Watch them. And particularly Abraham. And we'll get to that. And then fourthly, what we need, of course, at the end of it all is endurance. We, we, we need endurance. And so we'll talk about how to endure. So encouragement, exhortations, examples, and endurance. And there's a lot more we need, but that's the four that he covers in these verses. So let's begin. Number one, if you're taking notes, we need encouragement. Encouragement. I think we all have an idea of what encouragement is, but if we were to ask, what is it biblically? Let me give you a biblical definition of encouragement. It is simply putting somebody's hand into God's hand. You got that? The best example I can think of this is David and Jonathan. Talk about two friends that encouraged one another. In the Old Testament, when you were fearful, your hands would shake. That's the word picture that the Hebrews, the Old Testament gives. Your hands were shaking. 
And so the Hebrew word for encouragement is simply firming up the hand, strengthening up the hand. And to carry it further, it's taking that hand and putting it into God's hand so it is strong and secure. Does that make sense? This is what the author is doing here. He's giving them some much-needed encouragement. Look at verse 9. He says, even though we are speaking this way, and obviously we discussed last week what he was speaking of, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. And just stop there for a moment. I mean, those, this is the encouragement that he's given right off the bat. He, he probably discouraged them with what he said in verses 4 through 8. So now on the heels of that, he says, I've got to give you some encouragement. And in those two verses, if you wanted to break them down, I, I see three kinds of encouragement. Just, just to break those down. There's three types of encouragements here, and let me, let me give you those. First of all, he gives what, what we might call a pastoral encouragement. He is kind of a pastor in this. And so he's speaking from the heart to his people, and there's this pastoral encouragement. Notice he calls them what? Beloved. Dearly loved friends. This is the, the, the highest love in a relationship. Beloved. He uses the word agape there. And by the way, it's the only time in all of Hebrews. Paul normally uses it at the beginning of his epistles. Um, and maybe this is Paul, but for whatever reason, he uses it here. I love what A.W. Pink says. He says, I cannot really love a brother with the gospel love which is required of me unless I have a well-grounded persuasion that he is a brother. End quote. Here's some pastoral encouragement. And then he says, and right on the heels of that, we are confident of these things that are better. In other words, we are absolutely persuaded, depending on what your translation has. I'm convinced. I have a settled conclusion. That's the idea. The phrase actually is, a, is used in a legal sense to refer to someone who has looked at all the evidence, examined the case, and says, I am fully persuaded. I'm fully convinced. It's in the perfect tense. That's encouraging. He's not just evaluating my life, you know, what I did this past week, because I pretty really messed it up. He's looking at my life from the beginning. And he says, as a whole, yes, I, am, I have seen it all, and I am fully convinced of, of, of these better things about you. Those things, as we see here, that what? Accompany salvation. Things like what? Things like faith, I see it in your life. Things like love, as he says here. Things like hope, I mean those are the three main virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. That then moves into what I call the personal encouragement. He, he starts with the, uh, being pers pastoral about it, but then he moves to, to them, giving them some practical encouragement or personal encouragement. That is, he sees some things about them personally, he says, basically, you might be in a spiritual rut at the moment, but I have watched your life. I, I have seen the things that you've done. And again, verse 9, those things that pertain to salvation, those things that accompany to, uh, salvation. Literally, I've seen those things that have or hold on to salvation. Remember the um, 
little illustration that he gives up back in verse 7 and verse 8. Remember last week we talked about that and how it kind of echoes the parable of the sower? In verses 7 and 8, you can see the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful when it's cultivated it becomes a blessing from God. But then there's ground that sprouts up thorns and thistles and is no good at all. I mean, the rain comes down on both the grounds. One produces vegetation, the other produces thorns and thistles. The issue is the ground. And the illustration points to the issue is the heart. And he's saying, basically, I've watched your life over some time. And I've seen fruit. I haven't seen thorns and thistles. I've actually seen fruit in your life. And guess what? Fruit are those things that accompany salvation. When we, when we ask ourselves, what are the evidences of salvation? He, he, he can give us the answer here. Those things are those things that accompany salvation. When I look at a person's life over time, is there fruit? That's the issue. Not the perfection, but it's the direction. You say, what kind of fruit is that? Well, we could talk about the fruit of repentance. We could talk about the fruit of good works. We could talk about the, the fruit of praise and thanksgiving to God. We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the righteousness. But, but notice specifically in verse 10, he says, he, he, God will not forget your work and love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. In other words, I, I've seen your work. That's the first thing he noticed. That, that's fruit. And work here is good works. It's not works towards salvation or works for salvation, but it's the works that come after salvation. Remember that. Remember, good works is not the root of salvation, but it is the fruit of salvation. It's evidence that you are saved. Secondly, you notice he says, I, I observe that you have a, a, a labor or work of love. I mean, love. There's got to be love in a, somebody that's a Christian. Jesus said, what? They will know that you are my disciples if you have love. True agape love is a mark of genuine salvation. And you notice that both the labor and the love were motivated by a real genuineness. So that's, again, he's encouraging them, personal encouragement. But he doesn't stop there. Notice, thirdly, these Christians demonstrated or showed their work in love toward the name of God. He says, I know you did it uh, uh, in love, and I know you served them, and you're presently serving them, but I also know you did it because of him. I know you did it in his name. There's no hypocrisy with you, no self-centered motivation. You did it for his honor and for his glory. And because you were doing it for his glory, you, it all, all ultimately overflowed into the saints. And you see that there in the end. You minister to serve the saints. And what does that mean? Well, that maybe it was hospitality. Maybe it was some mercy ministry. Helping each other out. He saw that there was real love about them. And, and notice it's not just had love, but is presently still loving. At the end of verse 10. And by continuing to serve them. In other words, you had been producing fruit and you're still producing food. Now again, that's encouragement. If I'm in a spiritual rut, I, I, need, I need some encouragement like that. I, don't, I need somebody just to keep pounding me into the ground. I need somebody to lift me up. And this is how he lifts them up. And what it's, what's interesting in, in, in light of all this is that if, if you really 
want to understand who and who is not a Christian. According to this text, at least, it's by watching and observing their lives to see if they produce fruit. Not necessarily sitting them down and giving them a theological exam. The devil knows all the answers. Now, surely to be a Christian you have to have doctrinal truth, right? You have to have the particular gospel theology, right? And we talked about that yesterday. But in the end, you have to look at their life. Just because they're in a spiritual rut and they seem to be backsliding doesn't automatically mean that they're not a Christian. The writer of Hebrews doesn't think these people are not Christians. He just thinks they're in a, a, a state of laziness, a state of apathy, a state of indifference. And, and again, we didn't talk about why, but we could talk about that. Persecution, pressure from the state. Let's get these guys a bit of a break. I get it. Uncertainty is going to come in. Fear is going to come in. Doubt's going to come in. But he's trying to pull them back. And how does he pull them back? He encourages them. I've seen you. I've watched you over a period of time. The point here, those things that accompany salvation, listen to this. Those things that accompany salvation is, is not necessarily a reflection on understanding and articulating doctrinal truths, but on the fruit manifested in a person's life over time. You got that? So important that you do. Let me say that again. Those things that accompany salvation is not a reflection on understanding and articulating doctrinal truths necessarily, but on the fruit manifested in a person's life over time. The issue is fruit. And he's encouraging. I see fruit in your life. Now, pastoral encouragement, personal encouragement. There's one other element of encouragement here. And I'll call this um, providential encouragement or doctrinal or theological encouragement because he puts in here the character of God. And I get that. I, I get that when we go through some severe trials and there's severe suffering, probably the first thing that we kind of kick into is we doubt God. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's wisdom. Does he really know what he's doing? And so you've got, you got to encourage them how? In the character of God. You've got to, you got to point them to the to the character of God and his goodness and his benevolence and his wisdom. Particularly here, you'll notice that he points to his immutability and his righteousness. Look at verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love. In other words, God, God can't do wrong. You know that. God cannot do wrong, never will do wrong, and never can do wrong. And he's not just unjust, not unjust, but just. He says he will never forget or fail to reward the work that you're doing, especially if it's sincere, especially if it's promoting his glory and his honor, if you're doing it in his name. And if you drop down to verse 17, he points to God's immutability that he doesn't change. Notice he says his unchangeable purpose, which it is impossible for God to lie. I mean, they need to be encouraged in that. We all need to be encouraged in that. Be encouraged, he says. God will not change his position as to his promise. Having stated his promise, having made his promise, he was going to stand by it. 
In other words, his promise is fixed. His promise is unalterable. It's immutable. Snap out of it. There's some pastoral encouragement. There's some personal encouragement. And there's some providential encouragement because God is at work in every aspect of your life. He's made a promise to you. It's fixed. It's unalterable. It's immutable. No reason for vacillating. No reason for withdrawing. Secondly, not only do we need some encouragement, we need some exhortations or we need some motivations. And this comes mainly in verse 11. Notice, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy. Stop there for a moment. I mean, you read this, and if you've ever been into sports, at first reading, this reminds me of my old football coaches giving us a pep talk in the locker room before we go out onto the playing field. Okay, boys, you're all making a great effort to serve each other, but we need that same effort from you spiritually. We need you to go out there and move forward. We need you to move forward onto maturity to the end. Move forward so that all the fears, all the doubts, all are eliminated and you are fully convinced in your mind of the truth of the gospel. So get it together and get out there. That's how it comes across. That's the gist of what he's saying here. He's trying to get them to maturity. And, and the issue here is that they need some exhortations to get them there. I mean, you remember back in chapter 5. We won't take the time to go back there. But you remember in chapter 5, he basically calls them immature. And you will be immature if you're apathetic and indifferent and spiritually lazy. And back in chapter 5, that immaturity takes on a number of different characteristics. They're uninterested. They're unteachable. They're unskilled. They're unrighteous. They're undiscerning. They're unfaithful. And because of it all, they're unstable. Those were the characteristics of these believers. And yes, they believed, but they were immature. So they need some motivations. They need some exhortations. And, and the biggest one, as you know, and we just saw it last week in verses 4 to 8, the biggest exhortation there and throughout the letter is do not be like the Hebrews of the Exodus. He's pointing them back. Do not be like the Hebrews of the Exodus. That, that serves as a motivation. Don't be like them. That's a bad example, so to speak. I mean, those verses that we saw back last week tell us that you could experience all the spiritual blessings, but if it is not received by faith, then the issue is not maturity. The issue is what? Salvation. And you will die in your sins. In other words, what seemed to be their immaturity was actually their what? Unbelief. And this is why, as I said, immaturity is a very dangerous place to be. Because immaturity oftentimes looks like what? Unbelief. In fact, you could say immaturity is unbelief. You're going backwards. You're not believing. Believing and believing strongly moves you forward. And that comes in, you could say, in the, the, the second motivation. If the first is, hey, don't be like the Hebrew of the Exodus, the, the next exhortation or motivation comes with, show some diligence. You see that there? Show some diligence. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence. And notice it's each of you, all of you, 
All of you need to show some firm resolution of the inner spirit. Uh, the word diligence here, I love it, has the idea of speed or haste. Get out there. Get it done. Do it quickly. Every Christian have, should have some eagerness in them, some earnest in them, or, or, or in a word, some zeal in them. In fact, that, that's a biblical word. Christians should be zealous, zealous for good work, zealous for Christ, zealous for the gospel. In many respects, when we understand the true gospel and understand what we're saved from and what we're saved to, there should never be a lazy Christian on the planet. We're athletes running the race. We're soldiers fighting the war. Be diligent, he says. Hasten yourself to show that same diligence. What, what same diligence? The, the diligence you once had. I saw it before. I saw the love. I saw the service. Get back to that. Return quickly back to that. I mean, you're lacking what? Comfort? You're lacking confidence? You're lacking assurance? If you want all of that to return, get back to it. Show some diligence. Return to it. Entire confidence, perfect certitude, deep conviction, full assurance to what God has promised. Again, if you want all that, what do you got to do? You got to show some diligence. Show some diligence. And by the way, when he says full assurance here, it's an interesting expression. It literally means to be under the full sail. So show some diligence to get yourself under the full sail of assurance. In other words, it means that believers need purposely to put themselves in a place where they are moving along spiritually, moving along for God. You understand that sanctification is not a let go, let God. Sanctification is I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to roll out of bed one day and it's all going to happen. You need to discipline yourself for what? Godliness. Discipline, diligence. Whatever word you want to use, that's, that's the point. Diligence is the need. But just as much you want to put on diligence, you want to put off what? Laziness. Notice he, he uses that too. And, and the word laziness here is the same word back in 511. And it literally means, get this, no push. So you're supposed to be pushing ahead. You're supposed to be driving ahead and none of that's happening. That's laziness. No push. By the way, diligence and laziness describe what? It's an attitude. It's your attitude whether you are being diligent or you are being lazy. It's you. Stuart Aliot paraphrases it this way. He says, I long to see you shaking off the laziness which at the moment characterizes Christian lives, your Christian lives. As far as spiritual progress is concerned, you never seem to put yourself out or to inconvenience yourself in any way. That's his paraphrase of this verse. That's how how he reads it, and he reads it right. And and what? Nothing's new. We could say that today of some of us, if not many of us. I mean, you look at the church today, we have a lot of lazy Christians out there. A lot of lazy Christians. Why do we keep praying for revival? Because we need it. We have a lot of lazy Christians today, and you say, well, how do you know that? 
Well, laziness breeds immaturity, and immaturity is, for one thing, is undiscerning, and our church today as a whole is undiscerning on so many levels. We are drowning now. The culture is drowning with entertainment and amusement, and so is the church. Amusing ourselves to death, someone said. Amusing a... Musing, musing, thinking, A, not thinking. When we come to a place where we love to be entertained and, and put us, ourselves in a state where we're not thinking anymore, well, guess what? You're going to end up being immature. You're going to end up being lazy. Especially as Christians, because as Christians, we are to what? Meditate on the word day and night. That sounds like thinking to me. That sounds like taking the Word of God and chewing it over in my mind over and over and over again and understanding what God has said and understanding how, what God says for my life and how to apply it to my life. So diligence. Put on diligence. Put off laziness. Richard Baxter said this, a lazy Christian breeds a love of amusement. I guess what he's saying is, you show me a lazy Christian, I'll show you someone who just loves to be entertained. So, what do we need to overcome spiritual laziness? We need encouragement. We need exhortations. Thirdly, we need examples. We need examples. Notice he says this in verse 12. So that you won't become lazy, but here it is, will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Imitators, that word literally means mimic. You need to mimic these people. And of course, as you keep moving through Hebrews, Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, this hall of faith, these are all the people that, that, that's a good start to mimic. But there's others. This week I was reading uh, the book of Daniel again. Because obviously, Daniel living in Babylon, in many respects, today we are living in Babylon and then also Joseph living in Egypt and Esther living in Persia. and uh, These are real heroes, right? What was it about them that uh, perhaps we need to mimic? Well, Daniel, when it was time to compromise, he said, not at all. And it, the text says he set his heart not to eat and drink. He made up his mind he was not going to compromise. Joseph... He fled. We can throw in there Ezra. Ezra, he set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it and to teach it, Ezra 7.10. The common denominator of all these people that you should be imitating and reflecting, discipline. That, that's the, you, you will not show me a, you show me a godly man, a godly woman through a period of time in their lives that has pulled up and everybody can say, wow, that's someone to emulate. Sure, they prayed lovely prayers. Sure, they read their Bibles. Sure, they had godly behavior. But behind all of that was diligence and discipline. I was telling Evangel Bible Study on Friday night because we got somehow on the subject. And these are young people. And I said, you know, I have never met someone who is physically disciplined, but spiritually lazy. It normally goes hand in hand. You show me someone who is physically 
Discipline. I'll show you someone who's spiritually disciplined. If someone is physically lazy, it goes with the spiritually lazy. And if you want to kind of be diligent and return quickly back to a place where you hate the apathy and hate the indifferent, then maybe start with the small things. And even the small things can be physical. I said, for instance, make up your bed in the morning. Put your clothes in the drawer. Hang your towel up. Start cleaning your room. You start doing those things, it'll just, it'll just carry over to everything else. Right? Be disciplined. Discipline in the little things, you'll be disciplined in the bigger things. Now, apart from biblical biographies, both Old and New Testament, again, we've been around for 2,000 years, and there's some great biographies, great men and women of the faith out there you can read. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, you guys think it have it, have it bad in your life, go read a biography. Go read how some of these men and women suffered for their faith. I mean, there's some real heroes out there. Imitate them. Now, the one particular person that the writer here picks on, of course, uh, and if it is Paul, we understand, because Paul picks on Abraham in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, but uh, for these readers, it's interesting. He doesn't pick on Moses. He doesn't pick on David or... Daniel or um, any of those I just mentioned. He picks on Abraham. And why Abraham? And I want you to think about this. Follow with follow me on this for for a moment. And I was telling the ladies this on on Wednesday, so it's a good reminder. The story of Abraham comes in where Genesis twelve. What's going on in Genesis one through eleven? Well, you know, Genesis one is the creation, and then. Genesis 1 is the, 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 well, the creation, and then Genesis 2 tells us what kind, of, uh, what kind of God God is. Genesis 1 is telling us that God is king. He created everything, so he's the king. He makes man in his image, so the man is his vice regent. The woman is his vice regent. That is where God controls everything. Man is to rule and subdue the earth. Uh, I'm sure you got that in the, in the Bible studies on Wednesday night. The question might leave you at the end of Genesis 1. Well, okay, I understand that God is king, but what kind of king is he? Genesis 2 makes that clear that he's a good king. Look at the garden. Look at all the trees. Look at the rivers. Look at the stones. This is a, this is a wonderful place to live in. You come into Genesis 3, then you realize, well, the, the place that was all very good went to very bad, but it's not God's fault. It's man's fault because we have the story of the fall. And what's interesting, that as they were thrown out of the garden, it, it specifically says they were thrown out of the east of the garden. And then when Cain sinned, he was driven east of the garden. And then you come to Genesis 6, as you know, the flood, and every single thought and intent of the heart was only wicked continually. So it just kept spiraling down, spiraling down to the point where God says, I've got to restart this thing. And I won't rehearse the flood. You know the flood. But it's interesting. As soon as they came out of the flood, they traveled east. They traveled east to the land of Shinar, which is Sumer, or the Sumerian people, between the banks of the... Euphrates and the 